Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've been doing it for over six years now, and um, if this is new to you, if you go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, you'll see all the previous ones archived and organized in various ways under the past interviews menu. Check them out. This also exists as an audio podcast for those who like to listen to audio podcasts. And the whole thing is made possible by the support of appreciative viewers and listeners. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it to any degree, uh, there's a PayPal button on the site. And if you don't like PayPal, there's a page that explains other ways that you can donate if you wish. Uh, my guest today is my old friend, Timothy Conway. Um, I laugh because we've never met in person, but we've been friends for about 10 years now. Um, and I interviewed Timothy about six years ago, shortly after I started this show. And I recently listened to that interview, uh, and I, I think those who find this one interesting will enjoy that one. Um, and in that one, we, we went into a lot of biographical stuff and Tim's history and everything. We're not going to do that this time, so if, if you want to fill yourself in on that information, you should listen to the first one. I'll read a, a little bio here that Timothy sent me, just um, for the, especially for the sake of the um, audio podcast listeners who may not have read the, the bio on the BatGap page. Um, Surely by divine grace, in 1971, Timothy woke up to non-dual reality, the divine reality, or self, that is doing everything and being everybody. He has gratefully served ever since then as a simple spiritual friend, Kalyana Mitra, mm -hmm. And since the 1980s, as a satsang teacher, counselor, healer, and author of over 100 essays, as well as the book Women of Power and Grace, and forthcoming books, The Liberating Zen Sourcebook, the enormous two-volume India's Sages, and other works. His website, enlightened-spirituality.org, is a major resource on spiritual awakening, non-dual wisdom, and non-dual devotion, engaged spirituality, illustrious sages, and world religions, spiritual humor, and much more. I, the much more actually also includes a rather insightful critiques of, of some teachers who um, might have enticed a lot of people into following them but may have gone a bit off the rails. So I, I sometimes find those critiques interesting. Um, Timothy and his wife Laura are residing in Vistancia, Arizona, for at least a year to be close to her family. Timothy continues to hold free satsangs and classes on a variety of spiritual topics and also sees clients for psychological counseling services. His basic message, your unborn true identity is already complete, whole, and full as absolute awareness aliveness. And by graceful power of this suprapersonal reality, the personal consciousness instrument can be suffused with all sorts of beautiful divine virtues. Another thing which Timothy, does, Timothy doesn't mention in that bio is that he did his PhD dissertation on enlightenment, trying to wrap his arms around what it actually is. And I believe it was like 600 pages long or something, wasn't it, Timothy? Yeah. I think I even heard it was a thousand and you managed to edit it down to 600 or something. Yeah. yeah. That must have been tough on a manual typewriter back in those days if you didn't have computers to work with. That's um, right. And actually, that's the, the main thing I'd like to talk to you about today. We'll, we'll talk about whatever comes up and whatever people want to ask through the, the, you know, those who are watching live. But um, I would like to talk about 
what enlightenment is because all of us watching this podcast and you know thousands of people out there are keenly interested in it and yet if you think about it do we really all understand exactly what we mean by the word and do we all agree on what we mean by the word I'll talk a little bit more than usual for just a moment here to just get you started there, there are a couple of reasons why I think it's really important to understand what it is well first of all it is not a thing that a you gets we can make that clear but you know language being such as it is it's it's convenient to just talk you know normally I think one reason for a good reason for understanding what it is is that it can be an incentive a motivation there are many people who feel that life is meaningless and empty and depressing people hundreds of people a day end their lives intentionally because they don't want them to continue and to me it's like we're all metaphorically speaking multi-millionaires who are living in as paupers not having been told that we have this tremendous bank account uh, that we could tap into if we only knew it existed and had a means to, to tap into it so maybe you could even just speak to that first point before we go on as a culture understanding that there actually is such a thing and that it's right under our noses and that we all have the potential for the tremendous value of living it would transform us culturally and individually yes <laughs> you're gonna have to say more than that <laughs> well let's uh, get clear on some basic concepts perhaps yes. I mean that long dissertation was all about trying to find out what are the common areas of agreement uh, among all the great sacred traditions and the sub lineages within each tradition like say Chan Zen and Son Buddhism within Buddhism along with say the Vajrayana Tibetan Buddhist schools of, uh, of practice and thought so um, Christian mysticism and you know, northern European Christian mysticism, southern Christian mysticism, uh, like in you know, southern European countries from Italy and so forth, going over to Eastern Orthodox spirituality, the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition, Kabbalah and Hasidic traditions within Judaism and so forth and so on, different tarikas or lineages of Muslim Sufism, Muslim mysticism. And uh, even within just the so-called non-mystical aspects of, say, Islam, not even Sufi Islam, but just Islam, you know, what do the hadith, the sayings of Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, as our pious Muslim friends would say. Yeah, and you're just talking about this planet in say? recorded so, history, but actually, if, yeah. if we really get into what enlightenment is, it's something that would have universal implications wherever Precisely. sentient life exists in this universe. Right. So what are the shared features as each of these traditions, uh, the members, the teachers, the practitioners, as they all aspire toward the acme, the summit of realization, what are the qualities, the virtues, the, uh, the knowings, the realizations? So you know, I had been devouring the literature of these traditions since I was about 16 or 17 with those early mystical awakenings that happened without any reading or any uh, pre-formation, you know, by any concepts or anything. I was just a dumb jock, totally addicted to sports, and I just kind of suddenly woke up. 
And I had nothing to do with it, which is why I can't claim it as like my enlightenment and start going around trying to subtly, not so subtly imply that others are not enlightened and then uh, presume to be charging people money. I find this one of the oldest rackets and it's corrupt to the core. So uh, because the one power, shapeless, colorless, formless, partless, that's uh, being everyone and doing everything, this power is not mine. I don't even know, like, you know, I get different scratches. I recently moved and was, uh, say, with the garden furniture and stuff, running into branches and this sort of thing and uh, getting scratched. I don't know how to heal these cuts and abrasions, uh, running into, you know, serrated cardboard edges of the over 250 boxes involved in this move from Santa Barbara, California to uh, Arizona, you know, just with my older, fair, complected Irish skin, it cuts very easily. So, you know, I have all over my body now from this move, uh, different abrasions and cuts and everything. How are they healing up? Am I the personal consciousness doing any of it? No, it's all happening by this great power. The food you might have put in your mouth for breakfast or dinner last night. Are you personally supervising digestion? No, it just happens by virtue of the great power. So this great power is somehow using personal consciousnesses uh, as viewpoints on reality, as uh, places, so to say. Uh, think of the word locus, a place, a site, S-I-T-E for experience, very vivid experience of uh, bodily processes, mental, emotional processes, psychic processes, uh, rich, rich phenomena by the countless, countless gazillions of gazillions for gazillions of beings. One reality is doing all this and powering and animating all of this, sustaining this amazing dream. And it is a dream because it's vanishing moment by moment by moment. So enlightenment is really a set of phenomena for the personal consciousness, and it's all powered by and dreamed up by this one clear light source of all enlightenments, this one power that is powering the powerful realizations by different beings. Again, as I always say, one reality, doing everything, being everyone. Now, I was wanting to get clear, it's just this personal consciousness instrument, this Timothy fellow was given some kind of a, uh, an assignment to, uh, to start researching early on. What are all the greatest saints and sages in all of the traditions saying about this process of enlightenment or awakening or realization or uh, sanctification or salvation? Different terms have different uh, semantics for it. And so more generically in the dissertation, I just referred to it as spiritual realization, realizing everything uh, there is about spirit and spiritual capacity. And so in a project like that, I had to you know, do a literature referencing that was just massive. And also I did a whole set of interviews, dozens and dozens of interviews with different figures, uh, more or less representative of different sacred traditions. And I won't bother naming names, uh, quite a number of very interesting people back then in the uh, mid-1980s. And 
basically a whole set of criteria did emerge, different factors that definitely characterize uh, in common uh, so much of our shared sacred traditions, East and West, North, South, male, female, ancient and contemporary. And I, at my website, I have you know, very short uh, synopses, lists of these qualities like tremendous sense of non-duality on a whole lot of different levels, cognitive and affective and behavioral, motivational, uh, not just cognitive, and that's important uh, because if, you know, we have a very clear understanding and can give a good rap, a good talk about non-dual spirituality, there are fundamentally no real uh, differences or any gulf between personal consciousnesses or between personal consciousnesses and the one universal creative consciousness uh, between form and formlessness. Uh, if there's a clear understanding of this non-duality, but it's not also leading to um, affective and motivational behavioral non-duality, then uh, something's amiss, something's out of balance. So I've always been intrigued just how spirituality that is the realization of our formless, open awareness nature, pure spirit, pristine, unborn, changeless, the changeless host for this whole play of changes for the worlds and the personal consciousnesses. I've always been intrigued how this spirit principle, this absolute nature is uh, realized by beings and it's not realized through their own power. The absolute wakes people up and then can put them right back to sleep, which is why Dogen Zenji founded the Soto Zen tradition in Japan in the uh, first half of the 13th century. He said, you know, anyone who's boasting of some enlightenment as if it were a done deal, a completed state of affairs for the personal consciousness, think again, if enlightenment isn't renewing an ongoing moment by vanishing moment by vanishing moment then it's just a concept and it's something that people are probably identifying with in a not so wholesome way and maybe using as a position to one-up other people you know that whole uh, way of presuming to be enlightenment and enlightened and special and presuming that others are not enlightened crusades don't operate from that kind of conceit yeah so speaking of true sages if we put Buddha and Christ and Krishna and Zoroaster and Muhammad and Moses and whoever else in a room together and... Well, some of those I would call prophets, uh -huh. not so much sages. They're not, some of them don't seem to be as clear about non-dual truth, you know, and really all the way through, really seeing that phenomena are ultimately not other than formlessness. Pure noumenon. Okay, so if we Shakti. if we Shakti. took a nice, uh, you can pick the collection. But if we took a collection of sure. sages who would fit your criterion of what enlightenment is, and put them in a room together uh, from various cultures, various times in history, contemporary and ancient, do you feel they they would pretty much agree with one another? They would say, "Yep, we're all experiencing the same thing." More than that, I think they'd just be enjoying one another, enjoying the differences of how this one can somehow appear as many, mm -hmm. uh, how 
the one formlessness can show up as Rick. It's each person watching this. I mean, how miraculous, how miraculous. And not just, you know, who am I or what am I, but who art thou? Surely the openness that is your true nature, that the personal consciousness uh, functions out of, is empowered by, animated by, surely that uh, formless, open awareness, aliveness is not other than what's powering this personhood. And so you said a minute ago that in, yeah. you know, you, you'd have to be, you have to always be on your toes because you can lose enlightenment. Um, you didn't put it quite in those words. And obviously we have to sort of agree upon what we act, mean by the word. And we, we yeah. may choose to use the word as in, with reference to something that couldn't be lost. But do you feel yeah. that there is such a thing as enlightenment, which couldn't be lost under any circumstances for any reason, just sort of you're home free and that's it? Or do you feel that no matter how exalted or, or deeply realized one is, there's always the possibility of losing it? Always the possibility that the uh, one divine that's coming up with all phenomena could uh, emanate an unenlightened phenomenal state for a personal consciousness, because no personal consciousness is the absolute. When we speak of enlightenment, it is paradoxical because the clear light awareness that we are, I mean, is the most ancient wisdom text on the planet, the Briya Dadanyaka Upanishad, slightly older than the other big ancient Upanishad, the Chandogya Upanishad. The Briya Dadanyaka speaks of our true nature, the true Brahman or uh, reality, uh, the true Atman or true self, the unborn, changeless self nature of open being, awareness, bliss, Satchidananda, Supreme. This Brihadaranyaka Upanishad speaks of this true nature as the light by which all lesser lights are seen and known, the light of the sun, the light of the moon, the stars, the fire the light, the firefly light, all of these uh, lights, let alone modern eras, neon and LED and halogen lights and so forth, uh, and light shows, all of these lights and including a very luminous deity or a luminous uh, saintly sage, literally exuding light. All of these are phenomena, but it's this clear light, absolute awareness prior to all phenomena, prior to all experiences, which is hosting this whole cosmic light show and many lights, including the light of a sage, uh, apparently enlightened, uh, but that's still merely a phenomenon. And so when an apparent sage comes along kind of boasting of their enlightenment, <laughs> I have to chuckle and almost shed a tear because, you know, something's going wrong there. Yeah, but let's... Um... not clear or awake to the fact that the phenomenal enlightenment is uh, just a, a speck, just a speck of uh, happenstance within the absolute nature that we are. So... Enlightenment is for the personal consciousness. It's getting cleared up. You could speak of spiritual realization. You could speak of, again, the different traditions have different names and terms for it. Uh, usually it's put in a cognitive sense, like that gya, that ancient Sanskrit root. It's in the word jnana and vijnana in the Buddhist Sanskrit. Pragna uh, is the root that Gnosis. was borrowed by the Western mystical tradition down in Greece and 
Asia Minor, known as Gnosis, that GN comes from the Sanskrit JN. That all has a very cognitive uh, semantics to it. But again, true realization will open you up so much that affectively, that is emotionally and behaviorally, uh, it's just sheer non-duality uh, reigning. Uh, so someone like the hugging mother, Amma, whom you and Irene, your wife, uh, certainly have experienced so much over the years, and so many people have worldwide, uh, the famous hugging mother. She sometimes doesn't articulate on the cognitive level of understanding maybe the clearest non-dual dharma. Sometimes it'll sound rather dualistic, and yet in her actual behavior, in terms of the hugging marathon sessions and certain other aspects of her life, there is a remarkable non-duality, lack of uh, preference for her own comfort, uh, willingness to just be there hour after hour, day after day, decade after decade for all these beings, some of whom don't have personal good hygiene, and <laughs> she'll still take them right into her arms. and Lepers, even. Oh, of course. Yeah, I heard that story reported in that book chapter in the Women of Power and Grace book about Dutton. Dutton the leper, yeah. She took him to her as if, as one of her disciples said, as if he was her long-lost lover. Mm. And she you know, licked his open wounds and sucked the pus out of them. I mean, that's behavioral non-duality in a way that the uh, five-star hotel staying jet set trotting so-called sages I've heard about are charging money. And, you know, yeah. they're very holistic in their preferences, it seems, and in their biases, but some of Mama in her hugging mode, uh, she seems uh, just off the charts in terms of a capacity that most beings can't even dream of. Yeah. So the, could, the question, though, I want to come back to the question, um, which is um, you know, setting aside people who may be half-baked and who may have questionable motives or whatever else, but, you know, taking the Buddha, Christ, Amma, whoever we consider to be sort of the king of the hill in terms of human spiritual development, um, do you feel that even with, with them that there's a possibility of losing that state. And let me just add one more thing. You know, the, yeah. the Gita says the self realizes the self by the self. So, but it seems to do so through the instrumentality of a human nervous system. Enlightenment is a living reality by definition. It's not just, I mean, it's, it's well, yeah, it is. And, and, there, and human nervous systems are uh, frail. They're subject to disease and dementia or whatever, you know, um, Alzheimer's or whatever may happen to a human nervous system. Um, do you consider... And if I could interject, Rick, mm-hmm. important, not just human nervous systems, but the very personal consciousness itself is an instrument. Mm-hmm. Just as the moon does not shine with its own light, but the borrowed light of the sun, all personal consciousnesses in here, they have their existence in uh, this absolute awareness, which through the creative universal consciousness power, the Shakti of Shiva, this formless divine absolute self, through its Shakti, its creative universal consciousness and life power, it uh, conjures up all these personal consciousnesses. So just on the level of these souls, these persons, uh, these jivas, to use the Sanskrit word, uh, there is uh, frailty. There is the vicissitudes of the samskaras, the wholesome and unwholesome uh, personal consciousness tendencies, uh, what have been called the uh, non-binding and binding likes and dislikes. 
And, you know, there's innocent preferences and wholesome skills and talents. Uh, those color or characterize a, a, the personal consciousness stream of phenomenal states moment by moment through the lifetimes, uh, subtle, plain lifetimes and earthly uh, existences. But uh, there's also these unwholesome tendencies. And these are the ones that are kind of pulling and pushing people around, especially, it seems. And so that creates a frailty just on the level of the soul, not just the uh, physical human organism. Right, but if enlightenment has yeah. been attained, so to speak, um, does that imply that one has eliminated all unwholesome tendencies? Or can there actually still be a residue of those, even in someone like Ramana Harshi, for instance? The only, uh, the only kind of samskara I could find about Ramana closely, closely reading, not just the kind of official biographical literature, but all the reminiscence literature, mm -hmm. uh, is that he was absolutely stubborn when anyone tried to single him out as special, mm -hmm. tried to give him anything special, like certain medications toward the end of his physical life when the cancer was devouring the body. Uh, uh, when people would bring prasadam, you know, usually fruit or uh, sweets or flowers, uh, the edible kind of prasadam people would bring and they wanted Ramanas to sample at first and then uh, like give him, give it back. But he would make sure that everyone present got a bite of it before he himself partook. So uh, he, he was absolutely stubborn if people tried to uh, contravene him on that one. <laughs> yeah, so we wouldn't call that a flaw. Um, no, no, it was like the least kind of flaw you could possibly yeah. imagine for a being, but he'd actually get irate over it. Uh, and uh, yeah. that seemed to be his one uh, major dislike, but could you call it a binding dislike in the sense of a samskara, an unwholesome samskara that would necessitate future births? I don't think you could say that at all about Sri Bhagwan. So would it be fair to say know. of enlightenment that um, once th that it it's possible to have attained it to such a degree that regardless of the vicissitudes that the individual mind or body goes through, um, on the inside, so to speak, um, nothing fluctuates. For instance, last summer I was sitting maybe 15 feet away, well, earlier this summer, 15 feet away from Mama, and she was giving a talk, and, and she was sort of talking about some little disturbing, scary things that might happen to the world in coming years and and some of the stuff was getting a little strange and people were getting a little disturbed and at a certain point she just stopped and she said I'm tired I should stop talking <laughs> you know so I mean a person could an enlightened person so to speak could be tired and maybe they would say something that they wouldn't say if they were fresh or they might it might not come out as clearly and coherently as it might if they sure. were fresh. yeah so we're, we're sure. kind of saying but on the inside you know was any was was it would it have been possible for that clear that pure awareness or whatever we want to call it to have been shrouded to any degree by tiredness or oh there was probably a lot of witnessing of the state of fatigue mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can watch yourself fall asleep, and if you're ever having to deal with tremendous lethargy, like say if it's a situation you're on a job, or or uh, your spouse needs to converse with you about something, and it's late at night, and uh, your attempts to negotiate another time and, and space for discussing the topic uh, won't be heard of, uh, so it has to be now, and yet you're suffering from massive fatigue. Uh, you're driving a motor vehicle, uh, and there's no good place to pull over.
This sounds you like know, a personal experience. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I lost about 15, 18 pounds from the move and was going like many days of like 20 straight hours on the feet with, a, mm. you know, three or four hours of sleep at night. So if I little, look a little haggard, uh, the move to Arizona took its toll. Mm. But uh, yeah, the uh, capacity just to notice fatigue, uh, to notice alertness, all those different states, uh, waking, dream, dreamless sleep, and say within the waking state, greater states of energy, lesser states of energy, states of good health, ill health for body or mind, uh, all of that can get witnessed. Uh, but the clear light principle is always clear, always self-luminous, always uh, self-bright, uh, the very openness and host for whatever happens. Uh, so that's why they, you know, the one old Chan master spoke about, uh, I mean, Lehman Pang was one of them, uh, and a number of them they spoke about, uh, you know, uh, the power here is I eat when I'm hungry and sleep when I'm tired. And uh, so much of it is just, it's just happening. It's not me doing it or suffering it. Uh, but sometimes, you know, states of personal consciousness, suffering of pain will arise. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know with Amma, you know, she comes from a crazy Fisher uh, people's village background. Her father was had a real anger uh, problem, apparently. He was a rageaholic and he beat his own daughter severely. Amma, that is, the eldest uh, daughter, uh, who had to be like the little mother because her mother was very infirm, so little Amma. Uh, Sudamani, Precious Jewel, is her original name. She had to uh, be doing all the chores and everything, but then she became this full-blown mystic. She'd already had all these mystical tendencies as a youth. Well, you know, her father beat the tar out of her over and over again. And, uh, you know, it comes uh, through, uh, for instance, a, a book by Gail Treadwell, one of her longtime earliest uh, disciples, from the West, that is, uh, Western disciples that, uh, you know, Amma sometimes would uh, explode in ways that seemed like some raging Kalima, which is inscrutable. And uh, sometimes, you know, seeming more like something quite human, quite, uh, I mean, Gail uses a whole bunch of words like petty and so forth, uh, and apparently quite unenlightened. So where would those come from? How can, uh, profound personal consciousness enlightenment, you know, clearing of a whole bunch of samskaras uh, for uh, a personal consciousness, uh, the personal consciousness of Amma, how could that occur in one way? And yet there might be unhealed stuff from her uh, clearly abusive childhood that she underwent uh, growing up under her father. Could also conceivably have been a, a, a teaching strategy, possibly. I mean, although, you know, always evoking that alibi mm -hmm. can, can excuse all sorts of egregious behavior in, in teachers. You were mentioning in one of your satsangs a Zen teacher who beat the crap out of one of his disciples, threw him off a balcony, I mean, did all kinds of wild stuff. Yeah, Hakuin's Japanese Zen master. Yeah. 
And I don't know if he great, behaved great, that way I, habitually, you know, with, with people. Maybe it was just this disciple. And you said the disciple had a fair amount of spiritual ego. You know, he thought he was pretty hot stuff. And yeah. so, so this guy pretty much pounded it out of him, literally. <laughs> and eventually the, the man became enlightened. So that you know, it could be a teaching strategy in certain circumstances. So I think we should Definitely. we should use that excuse very cautiously because... Oh, very, very, very cautiously. Yeah. Yeah, just like, you know, people that have invoked the idea of those Tibetan Mahasiddhas and their crazy behavior like Marpa eating Milarepa and so forth. All of those stories were invented uh, centuries later. Uh, the really tough stories of Tilopa really beating the crap out of Naropa, you know, demanding he jump off a, a cliff and coming down to healing his uh, broken body. And all of those stories were invented about five, 600 years later by some crazy Tibetan monk. So yeah. the idea of taking those literally and then using it as a license or rationale for punishing one's own disciples, yeah. that's just such arrogance and conceit, uh, a beggar's description. Don't try this at home, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, my initial question was, yeah. Enlightenment. What is enlightenment? Uh, it's a good idea to have an idea of what it is because it can be an incentive to quote unquote attain it. And most people don't. Most people in the world don't even know such a thing exists. You know, there's some series of verses in the Gita where it's, it kind of breaks it down by powers of ten. Like out of so many thousands, uh, only one even knows that there is such a thing. And then out of so many thousands, uh, so thousands of those, only one actually strives for it. And then out of so many thousands of those, only one actually attains it. You know, so it seems like a, kind of an exclusive club. But um, I kind of feel like as we grow, as we evolve as a culture into a more enlightened age, which I hopefully we're doing, it will become a, a, a better known thing uh, that you know human beings can attain to, sort of like Abraham Maslow's you know self-actualization as we rise up the hierarchy of needs. And you know you could envision a society in which school children, in fact, there are schools like this already. I, there's one in my town in which school children are taught to meditate and taught about enlightenment and so on and so forth. And it just is as normal as learning about history or sociology or something. Sure. So there's that. Yeah, I think there's some hyperbole in that uh, Hindu metaphor of the exclusive club, you know, yeah. one out of a thousand, and then of that subset, only one out of a thousand, etc. I mean, the Buddha has spoken very similarly, you know, of what are the odds of a blind turtle, uh, you know, sticking its little head and neck through a little tiny hoop on an ocean of such enormous, enormous size. I mean, the odds are basically impossibly against it. So not very encouraging. So uh, all of that is motivational hyperbole. Uh, it's uh, kind of uh, the way like uh, Newt Rockne would tell the Notre Dame football guys, you know, win one for the Gipper. Uh, <laughs> it's a big uh, uh, or boot camp pep talk kind of thing. But in other ways, uh, because the clear light awareness, our absolute truth nature is true. Uh, it's simply relaxing back into what is always here, closer than close, closer than your eyeballs, nearer than thought, prior to the arising of any thought about will I become enlightened? Who is enlightened? How do I become enlightened? Prior to each of those thoughts, 
and prior to each of the syllables in the verbal formulations in your head, what are you? You are this openness right now, right now. You are fast, open, changeless, utterly silent and still, isness, awareness, aliveness. And this is playing at personifying as a personal consciousness. And operationally, that's just a series of personal consciousness moments. It's a flux, a streaming of phenomena. So, you know, mind is minding in all sorts of perceptual ways with memory, uh, concept making, making sense out of sensations, uh, uh, evaluating, uh, so forth and so on. And uh, the body is this incredible process of bodying, like some 70 trillion cells, most of which are friendly bacteria. Uh, so much of the rest is just like bloodstream, platelet cells and so forth. There's only about 4 trillion out of the 70 trillion cells sitting there on that chair uh, that are actually native tissue cells. And those are dying and being renewed. So this incredible dynamism, this ever-changing, evanescent streaming. And where was the body 100 years ago? Or where will it be 20 or 50 years hence? Uh, it's just nothing. And yet, while it's a rising moment by vanishing, miraculous moment, uh, it's miracle upon miracle, as is the mind, the set of perceptual capacities. So I part company from those that are always trying to shame you for being a personal consciousness, shame you for your, quote, ego mind. That's a cheap trick that certain people, a lot of people in the spiritual and religious field, uh, use to make people ashamed of personhood and then feel like you have to somehow leave all that behind for the impersonal. Our real nature is supra-personal, and it's the host for all the impersonal phenomena like you know, atmospheric gases, uh, cement and, you know, tarmac surface of the road on the street where you live and so forth. That's all impersonal, but these personal consciousnesses, their destiny is not to be destroyed or suppressed or utterly abandoned for the sake of some impersonal reality. Uh, no, our suprapersonal reality is suprapersonal prior to the personal, beyond the personal, uh, transcending the personal. And yet, it includes consciousness states and their interaction with fellow persons and impersonal things and so forth. So realizing all this, there's a clarity here. And anyone, anyone can realize this same clarity. Gazillions of beings clearly exist throughout the cosmos, animal beings, human beings, celestial, subtle plane beings, and each one at any moment is none other than this. Each one at any moment can simply, through this radical intuitive knowingness, a knowing by being, capital K knowing, not knowing of phenomena, that's relative knowing, but absolute knowing by being clearly what we always absolutely are. This knowing by being is available to anyone, anyone at any time, any moment. So we can't be exclusive. There's no exclusive club about this. Okay, good. Uh, 
And that's why I say many spiritual teachers out there who I find abusing or exploiting followers in numerous ways, I often find them very unenlightened compared to many of their followers who are serving selflessly and have largely abandoned all unwholesome tendencies while they're figure that they put up on a pedestal and are worshiping, uh, that figure is, uh, you know, often full of self-aggrandizing tendencies. That person is often just, as I sense it and hear from people's testimonials and revelations, such persons are manifesting all sorts of states of unenlightenment. So go figure, the great paradox. That actually gets me into a, a second fundamental question or fundamental reason why I think it's a good idea for people to have an understanding of what enlightenment is and that is that it I think it should that it safeguards the path we've seen so many weird things come down that, that could be sort of loosely thrown into the basket of enlightenment or higher consciousness everything from Jonestown to high, Heaven's Gate and Scientology and you know any number of other things and it seems to me that if someone really had a clear understanding of the goal, so to speak, and again, you know, those kinds of words are awkward when we're talking about what we're actually talking about, but if they really understood what the potential of human awakening or realization was, then, I mean, there was a, there was a documentary on CNN last week. Uh, I saw it. Yeah, I, I saw it too. It's like, holy mackerel, these are intelligent, fairly well-educated people. And you know they they sort apparently of not. <laughs> Irene says apparently not but they they hung out with this weirdo for decades you know who was like just kind of staring at them like Rudolph Valentino in an old movie. It's it's like where's the discrimination? If, you know if we really understood what we're about with this whole evolution to higher consciousness business, it seems that we we wouldn't get waylaid by things like that. And I, again by we I mean a larger culture. So there's a real value, as I see it, to infusing a clear understanding of the path, the goal, into our kind of collective awareness. Yeah, and that's why, you know, that topic for the doctoral dissertation arose. I mean, later on, Bill Moyer said, the attempt to define what is really spirituality is the great problem of our era. Oh, because he? he was already hip to the fact that most people had abandoned traditional authoritarian mm -hmm. forms of religion for a more generic kind of uh, spirituality, mm. uh, spiritual living, you know, from whatever highest sense of spirit people could uh, be awake to. So, you know, when we're basically savvy about all the different qualities and virtues and wholesome aspects of real spirituality, living from spirit, finding spirit in everyone we meet, uh, flowing, letting go, and not selfishly clinging, and self-aggrandizing with pride and greed and uh, defensiveness and all that. When uh, there's authentic spiritual living, then uh, we're savvy. We're not capable of being duped by the uh, profiteers, the, the hucksters and charlatans who have maybe some degree of profound spiritual awakening, but then it somehow gets manifested in uh, more or less insidious or very explicit kind of twisted, distorted ways that create all sorts of problems for themselves and in relationships. So 
Yeah, it's sad. Often people get together and there can be very powerful Shakti kind of phenomena, but in Christian Pentecostal charismatic circles would be called, you know, the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit working. You know, I did my master's thesis on that a few years before the doctoral dissertation. It was these cross-cultural uh, examples and discussions of, again, what could be called Shaktipad or the blessing power of the Holy Spirit, the Bardaka or Bardaka, as they call it in Sufi and Jewish mystical terms. Even in the Buddhist traditions, you have a lot of instances of energetic empowerment on the subtle energy level, and all sorts of powers and wonders can ensue. But, you know, it's very easy for people to get caught up in what I've always called the grace chase uh, about that. And then they lose the sense of the absolute and they're chasing phenomena mm. and very addicted to the phenomena happening around a particular phenomenon, a spiritual teacher or a place or a particular group of people. And then it just can become, you know, very toxic very quickly when uh, all the unwholesome qualities start arising as they do in powerful situations. They're testing situations and the selfish ego tendencies can often just start manifesting in spades. But if people are still thinking, oh, this is all godly happening, uh, they can very easily get seduced by the whole thing. And that's why some of these cults, the dysfunctional cults, the disempowering cults, will unfold over decades. And you wonder, and the people themselves wonder when they finally wake up and leave it, you know, why was I in there so long? It's because there was subtle entrancement with phenomena. But when we're clear about our absolute clear light host nature, which is prior to all phenomena, and not interested in any particular phenomena as the method for God realization, then uh, there's real freedom. There's real freedom. You can't be duped. You can't be seduced. So, yeah, good point. You've made a few references, we might say aspersions, to uh, teachers who charge money. And I just want to address that for a minute. Obviously you don't, um, Nisargadatta didn't, Ramana didn't, although the ashram received donations that, that supported it. And well, but they lived in dire poverty for years. Yeah, it wasn't like a cushy scene or, any, or any, anything like that. Yeah. You know, and some teachers these days are making a killing. I also happen to know some who are living very modestly, but who don't have another means of support. And if they had to work an eight-hour day, wouldn't really be able to serve in any capacity as, as a spiritual teacher. And they charge reasonably for their time. 15 and it would always be good, even when there is charging of modest sums, have it be on a sliding scale. Because yeah. let's say, in this day and age, we live in the most extreme period in the United States. Uh, in its history in terms of have everythings and have nots. Uh, I mean, the rich are super rich. I mean, some of these decamillionaires, not to mention the centimillionaires and billionaires, to drop a hundred bucks here, $500 there, $10,000 over there, it's nothing to them. It's like right. pennies. Whereas to some you know, elderly 78-year-old woman who needs to be on certain medications and uh, you know, her rent is going up maybe each year, uh, uh, that sort of thing. You know, an extra $10 is the difference between hearing that great so-called enlightened teacher give his evening rap that he could probably do in his sleep 
and uh, her medication or her food. So yeah, I think, no, uh, I think the people I'm people, alluding to actually. It should be free. Yeah, well, the people I'm alluding to do offer a sliding scale and, and freebies yeah. for those who who really can't, you know. But they have dentist bills and car repairs and you know things like that, and ordinary things and rent and that everybody has to deal with. And uh, I'm just coming to their defense and saying that not everybody is in a position to just offer. Okay, but let's get clear about something here, Rick. Uh -huh. A friendly discussion of this, which is. Let's look at the setup from the get-go. Why is one person presuming to be enlightened and sharing teachings for a fee, which suggests, which suggests, in all the trappings of the situation, if you look at you know social psychology and how power is shared or not, this sort of thing. Uh, the very shape of the room, you know, flowers in front of the teacher who's sitting on a fancy chair usually. All of that setup from the get-go reeks of what someone like Roman Maharshi fundamentally rejected, which is the idea that one person is enlightened and the other is not. When Ramana looked at people, he saw only the self. He didn't see a client or someone who needs to hear this message about enlightenment because you're not enlightened and I am. He had nothing to do with that. Neither did Srinivasargadatta, Anasuya Devi, Anandamai Ma, the Buddha, uh, any number of great, great, truly authentically realized beings. So, you know, my comment about a lot of this, it really has to do with more fundamentally a power grab that's going on. And it's a seducement, you know, because if you make your livelihood, ability to pay your bills dependent on being a spiritual teacher, then you need spiritual disciples and listeners and students and people willing to pay for what you have to share. And I fundamentally reject that as a valid model for authentic spiritual sharing. Well, let's say you make your livelihood... Um... The transmission model where... You know, and some people openly speak of how they've been prepared, you know, by their teacher to share the Dharma in a certain way. And, you know, there's a certain transmission of an understanding and grace. All of that just reeks of phenomenality and is totally uh, not expressing the message of the egalitarian nature of this clear light awareness that all of us fundamentally are. Well, I hear you, and uh, I can think of teachers who explicitly articulate exactly what you're saying right now. They're striving for a more egalitarian arrangement. They're still serving as a spiritual teacher, but they, they are trying to empower others and, and make it a, you know, kind of a learning circle and not just a sort of a hierarchical arrangement with them up yeah. on, a, on a couch. And, and, you know, I mean, if one makes one's living as a psychologist or a psychotherapist, they depend upon clients paying a certain fee for their time. Would you put that in a completely different category than... Um, yes. Why? Yes, because psychotherapy, and uh, I've certainly over the years done a lot of pro bono counseling for people without charging any fees. Uh, here and there, you know, people wanted to uh, pay and were comfortably able to. And so I'd uh, take that as a donation. But it's one thing in a psychotherapeutic context where someone comes in with a presenting problem 
And soon enough, through brief therapy, we're not talking about psychoanalysis where you seduce people into one, two, five, 15, 30 years of therapy and countless thousands of dollars. In brief therapy, you can very quickly bring people home to non-dual awareness. And then uh, their problem is obviated. In spirituality, from the get-go, the message is one of completeness and wholeness as you are right now, closer than close. Your true nature, spirit, has no problems, has no lack, has no warping or, or trauma or disfigurement or distortion. So in spirituality, this should be the upfront message. When money is brought in, and then people adduce the psychotherapy model as a rationalization or justification for it. What we have here is still the model that something is wrong with people. They're not yet enlightened. Oh, that woeful ego mind, or oh, that terrible little personal consciousness. Uh, it's still so unenlightened. Here, come to me. I have the answers for how you can outgrow all that and grow up and become enlightened and no longer be a problem. I, I fundamentally disagree with that entire message and approach. It's not the message of the great sagely non-dual tradition, but here in the United States, and it's spread back to Europe and back to India itself, people operating right at the foot of Arunachala, you know, right outside Ramana Maharshi's old ashram. If they had their druthers, they'd be right in there sitting on his couch, presuming to be teaching in his lineage some of these characters. Mm -hmm. I won't mention any names, but I think anyone who does a little reading will find out who they are. Uh, such characters completely betray the great wholesome spirit of wholeness that Sri Ramana lived and saw and shared. So I have to fundamentally disagree with anything that tries to use a psychotherapy model as a model for sharing non-dual spirituality, because true non-dual spirituality will not admit fundamentally of any flaw in who you really are true but yeah. you know to take an extreme example you walk into a room of psychotics at a mental hospital or something like that and say <laughs> and, and say you know who you truly are is is you know the pure unchanging universal they're not ready to hear that in most cases they're not Some ready to hear that and so the, Shankara made it very clear Shankara made it very clear about 13 1350 years ago that uh you know, the pure Advaita teaching is only to be shared with those who actually have already grown on the personal consciousness level, such that the personal consciousness won't be all full of trauma and uh, you know, mental, emotional disorder uh, and pain that uh, will then hijack the message or ignore it or distort it, uh, the non-dual message about who we are. So there's states of readiness. I don't deny this. Uh, stages of brightness. That's why for many it's kind of a healing thing, a kind of form, to use psychotherapy jargon, of reparenting to have like a devotional practice. Uh, but the sooner the devotion can be realized, it's non-dual devotion, realizing that what's the power by which I sing the praises of or bow down to the great uh, living God, surely that power is God the power by which I express praise or gratitude or uh, ask for help for suffering beings, that power by which I devotionally ask the great, 
great deity, that power itself is God. So when the true devotee uh, realizes that only God's power is here, I have no power of my own even to be devoted, then uh, the devotion is non-dual devotion and it's uh, far less problematic, doesn't have all those kind of um, painful aspects of devotion, like why does God seem near today, uh, yet tomorrow God may be experiences more distant and remote, and you know, today my heart is, is elated, and today my heart is depressed. If you read the literature and the classic religious traditions of devotion, dualistic devotion, you find all of those vicissitudes, the ups and downs, and people even getting suicidal and so forth, but when they realize there's only one reality here doing everything and being everyone, all of that falls off. Sure. So, you know, having interviewed well over 300 people now and having taken some interviews down uh, eventually because I felt like, Irene and I both felt like, well, this person is really sort of getting a little carried away with themselves. We don't want to be contributing to their popularity. Uh -huh. I, I nonetheless feel that a great number of the people I've interviewed are, are approaching this in a very sincere, honest, down-to-earth, humble way. Hallelujah. I mean, yeah, and, and that, you know, obviously people can get suckered into all kinds of things, but the sincere ones, you know, you, you see some of the people who have been spending time in their satsangs and whatnot, and they really seem to be, they have their head in the right place, their heart in the right place, and they really seem to be genuinely benefiting from, from the process. So I, I'm just a little bit more um, forgiving and supportive than you are, I think. Well, in, I'm very supportive of wherever truth is shared in a heartfelt, sincere way. Yeah. So, I mean, I yeah. just don't want to paint the whole thing with too broad a brush, right. you know. Um, I would agree with that sentiment, Rick. Totally. Yeah, there's some really good eggs out there. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them actually are charging a fee for their retreats and whatnot. I mean, I went to a retreat last September with a guy that become very popular, even though he actually tries to keep a low profile, just because of the word of mouth. And... It was a real nice experience, and the course fee for the retreat is basically exactly what the retreat place charges for the room and board and all that stuff. And if anybody wants to donate anything extra, they can. And he never says how much you should donate or anything like that. And I don't yeah, know. Yeah, like you know. So he's approaching it in that way. Yeah. Okay, so that that's I think we covered that topic. And one other thing on along those lines. The readiness of a person to become a spiritual teacher. I mean, I've, I, I'm told, and you can corroborate this, that in, in Zen tradition, you, you're supposed to wait at least 10 years after awakening to take on the role of a teacher. And uh, what I have well, seen... There's nothing fixed about that particular... Yeah, but you're supposed to wait a while. You, you don't just jump in yeah. with both feet as soon as you've had some sort of awakening. And what I observe is that in, in many people, there's a sort of a, a, a lot of inner Velcro still that... You know, they've had some awakening, they, they feel marvelous, they, they start teaching, and subtly, without their even knowing it, the praise, the adulation, the attention starts sticking to that inner Velcro, and yeah. the, the ego kind of begins to get more and more aggrandized, and then they begin to get in trouble. So maybe you could address that point a bit. Well, I think you've described it very right. succinctly, Rick, yourself there. 
Yeah, I mean, can one not be a teacher? If one obviously has a vocation as a teacher. I mean, I remember sitting with Anamalai Swami, a very beautiful spiritual son of Sri Ramana Maharshi. You won't call him a disciple because Ramana said he had no disciples. Everyone was the self. But Anamalai Swami really consummately manifested the simplicity and clarity among all the uh, people I'd met who had uh, personally known and uh, sat a lot with Sri Ramana Maharshi. And uh, Anamalai Swami, among other things, like most Indians, he knew how to read palms. So he looked at my palm and said, oh, you see, he had invited me. He had invited me to stay there in India and live with him. And uh, just as a simple sadhu on the jnana way. And uh, it was very tempting, very tempting. I was a grad student and, and broke. <laughs> and it would have been easy to just let it all go and stay there and live on bhiksha on any you know, donations of food, rice by the villagers. And uh, there was an ashram there, Anamalai. Swami, there was a, had an ashram there that Ramana himself authorized to be built and maintained. He never did that for any other of his followers, but for Anamalai Swami, he did. So Anamalai Swami read my palm when I said, you know, I should be getting back home and I have family there. We lost my sister. You know, my parents would be very aggrieved if I stayed here in India the rest of my days and all of that. So I should at least go back and maybe finish graduate school. They were helping invest in that along with my own working and paying for it. So he looked at my palm and he said, you you have to go back. It's it's just in your prarabdha karma, your destiny karma, what's just prescribed, <laughs> ordained by the universe. It just has to happen. I said, but I'm so mental already, you know, I'm a graduate student and everything. I have this huge library on sacred traditions and psychology and science. Shouldn't I just be a farmer? <laughs> Wouldn't that be a far less problematic way and least chance of the ego coming in? He looked at my palm again. He said, you don't have any choice about it. So there are going to be people, they have no choice but to somehow be in some kind of teacher role or sharer, presenter role. And I would simply, simply encourage, really check out the motivation. And would you be just as happy, you know, working, you know, in some store like Trader Joe's Market? I mention them because I know they pay their workers a living wage with benefits. Uh, they're not exploited wow. like certain corporations with their workers. You know, or could you be a farmer? Could you live simply? Could you be... Uh, just a quote housewife or house husband. Mm -hmm. Could you live without the glamour? Yeah. And attention? We try to yeah. interview people yeah. like that, actually. We, it's hard to find them sometimes. They don't have a public profile, but we, we do try to mix in some people who are living lives like that, who, who don't want to be teachers. Um, sometimes I think they, there's many, many, many such beings. Yeah. Many yeah. such beings in our midst. Sometimes they aren't as articulate as people who are practiced sure. teachers, you know, because te teachers are used to teaching. And, but there's an, a sort of innocence and simplicity, and, and it's one of the original motivations of this show to demonstrate that, that awakening is not for special people, it's for everyone, and that there are all kinds of 
people who are driving trucks. I mean, I interviewed a truck driver. He's still, he's still a truck driver, and that's what he likes to do. He doesn't want to be a teacher. It's, but he had this beautiful awakening. So they're yeah, out I there. I salute you, know? you, Rick, and Irene, and Jerry, and everyone uh, who makes Bad Gap possible, because this is exactly what needs to happen, is the realization that this one clear light, absolute awareness, open isness, is uh, always here, omnipresently here, and everyone we meet, and anyone can be living this. Uh, I think there's many, many, many beings living from this uh, beautiful simplicity and openness and real freedom. Yeah. Suffused with all sorts of beautiful divine qualities. And that's why I harp over and over on how enlightenment is not just some cognitive understanding. There, in many circles, they make a fetish out of this understanding. And then as soon as you learn the concepts and the language and can do the rap, I mean, I could teach anyone uh, in about three minutes how to have the most stupendous kind of profound sounding enlightenment rap. <laughs> First, you learn to use negation language, negate everything, just speak with that paramarktika satya, the absolute truth level parlance, negations, and superlatives and certain use of metaphor and you can sound very impressive on a conceptual level of the understanding but we learn that there's all sorts of folks that have that uh, knack that eloquence uh, loquaciousness they can run with a kind of a rap that could be learned in as little as five minutes or an hour but the rest of their life is uh, their equality of their relationships and so forth. The presence of the divine virtues, it's just not there. Yeah. So uh, meanwhile, you find people like your friend, the trucker, and many, many, many other beings who I think their lives are suffused with beautiful, beautiful divine virtues, a whole array uh, of virtues. And yet they may not have the conceptual understanding, let alone the loquacious ability to speak absolute-ish <laughs> in the part of yeah. Yeah, no, good, good point. So, I mean, you can, you can put two people next to one another, just to summarize what you just said. One of them might be genuinely realized and not be very clear in, in being able to express it. Another might be able to express it beautifully, but not be actually realized. Yeah, inwardly they're thinking, now, how can I turn you into a paying client and buy that extra mansion I want, you know? Yeah. Irene just sent in a question um, related to this uh, fees business. She said that, I believe in traditional Indian culture, doctors and spiritual teachers do not charge money. However, their society is set up to support them, if not yeah. lavishly. Other cultures are not set up such as this, and thus teachers do need to charge to survive, but that does not justify outrageous fees, etc. Hmm. Okay. Here's a couple of questions that came in. Let's see. Well, I can say one more thing. Oh, too. yeah, I please. Yeah, sure. Good day job for many so-called teachers. It would be very good for humility and really, for instance, generating more of that engaged spirituality kind of empathy for how so many uh, workers of the world, disunited and united, are, are faring. Mm -hmm. uh, there's massive, massive wage exploitation going on. And... Uh, you know, lack of benefits and so forth that traditionally uh, were very much part of the uh, uh, usual kind of living wage job in the United States. Now those living wage jobs, paying benefits, 
uh, are few and far between. You hear stories from the Economic Policy Institute, my favorite economic think tank, very progressive, that, you know, for like every single living wage job, like say a job as a custodian, so-called janitor at a school or hospital or something, for every one living wage job, there's like 300 applicants. Wow. What are the other, what are the other 299 folks doing that aren't lucky enough to get that job? Where yeah. do they go? We need to make America great again. Just and kidding, just kidding. Labor, <laughs> dignity of labor uh, right. can be reinforced. And yeah, we could have a lot more jobs. Every billion dollars that goes toward the big racket of lobbyists and defense contractors and uh, uh, their bought and paid for congressperson, you know, for instance, uh, producing far, far more you know, tanks and fire planes and obsolete kind of technology that the Pentagon itself doesn't even want. Right. Many former top brass and current top brass at the Pentagon are outraged by this racket that goes on between the lobbyists, the contractors, and the uh, congresspersons to vote these uh, procurement projects. Well, every billion dollars going for those, uh, make the contractors and lobbyists rich and the congresspersons rich, because it's a revolving door. The Congress people go right into those industries they've just legislated on. For every billion dollars you spend on so-called defense technology, you could create double or triple the number of peacetime jobs in education and so forth. That's a great point. And I'm glad you're bringing this up. I mean, it might yeah. seem like a rather abrupt segue to some people listening, like, why is he talking about this all of a sudden? But um, I think that spirituality and practical realities such as economics and social justice and all are inextricably interconnected and that you know spirituality has something to offer these more practical realities and Certainly. perhaps bring bring about some real change perhaps with a lot less pain and bloodshed than change has had to have in the past and this well, let's talk about that a bit more but maybe before we do so why don't you just sure. explain your three levels model? Because I think it's mm -hmm. it's really good. I li I read it every couple of months, you know, just to clarify my. And I send it to people, and I think it'd be it would help explain why you were able to make this segue all of a sudden into talking about um, sure. economic justice. Yeah, and if I could just say, you know, back uh, what was it like April of two thousand three, the National Sun magazine. Mm -hmm. That's a journal of. Um, thinking on current events and psychology and spirituality and poetry and politics and so forth. The Sun magazine did this full-on interview with me and I basically distinguished between mystical spirituality and engaged spirituality. And most of the interview, uh, the bias in the editing of it was to emphasize more of the engaged spirituality. But uh, most of what I've been talking about today thus far and in much of my teaching and sharing and writing is about mystical spirituality, but we cannot leave aside this engaged spirituality. And the threefold model you refer to is simply an elaboration of the old Dvaya Satya, the Sanskrit phrase meaning the twofold truth. It's there in the Upanishads, the Buddha speaks of the Dvaya Satya, uh, Nagarjuna, the father of Mahayana Buddhism, uh, Shankara speaks of these this twofold truth level. It's basically, I made reference to it earlier, Paramartika Satya, the absolute truth 
level understanding and, and parlance or discourse and the relative or phenomenal conventional and we could say pragmatic level of discourse so for instance the absolute level language is all about negations and superlatives it's like none of this really exists right now this is all just a dream only awareness is formlessness is always transcending and it's the only reality nothing has ever happened you don't exist nothing exists only the great no thing is real that's absolute language mm -hmm. and you can stop any conversation in its tracks <laughs> yeah, but, right. and unfortunately some people have learned that that's why i said i could teach people to sound really profound in just a few minutes just using the language of uh paramartika satya absolute yeah well, you could be sitting at dinner with a neo-advaita person and say please pass the salt and he could say there is no salt you know there is no passing there no is table no people yeah no, Time, you, you say, right. would, you, would you cut the crap and pass the damn salt? <laughs> well, the Chan and Son and Zen Masters had a field day with any unripe folks who felt or presumed that they were enlightened because they had this realization of the Absolute. Chan Master Jojo would say, something wrong with you? Go have a cup of tea. <laughs> I think you need to eat something, you know. <laughs> Uh, they just immediately saw that as just, you know, a power play, an attempt by someone to up-level themselves above everyone else's level of conventional relating and speaking and interacting by, again, speaking absolutish, as I call it. Nagarjuna himself said in his classic uh, treatises on shunyata, better translated as openness, but usually translated as emptiness. He said, you know, this great teaching of shunyata, absolute openness, emptiness, no thingness. It's a medicine for those who are sick on worldliness and thingness. But for those who get sick on this medicine of shunyata, what medicine can we give them? Mm. Well, the Chan Masters had medicine. It was like, you know, go scrub the floor. Yeah. Or uh, go read the sutras or go uh, work with the uh, monastic laborers out in the garden and the farm fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They wanted uh, folks to really realize the non-duality and that privilege, the absolute, the silence, the stillness, and then get all uncomfortable about the so-called messy world of the 10,000 things, uh, the myriad upon myriads and gazillions of phenomena. So... This threefold model, it's basically positing a level, and it's not a level, it's the absolute nature, uh, the absolute truth level. And then uh, in the old two-truth model, you simply had the absolute and conventional or pragmatic, but I felt the need to insert a second intermediary level. It's, it's like the, let's put, on, I'll put my hands up here, level one, the absolute. There's level three, I don't know if the camera's picking up, it That's is. the realm of phenomena, light and dark and positive and negative charge in the atom, you know, the uh, good and evil, justice and injustice, male and female, you know, Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, Jewish, Sufi, you name it, all the differences, the different kinds of flora and fauna, uh, cultures, you name it, uh, all the phenomena of all the sciences. That's level three. Level two 
still acknowledges multiplicity, but in the absolute perfection of how the absolute knows all phenomena and beings. It's this idea that timelessly we are all living Buddhas, timelessly all, including bad boys of history like Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot and Mao Zedong and Stalin and Timothy, all the bad boys <laughs> of history are all still intrinsically and innately pure, innocent personhood personal consciousness emanations of the one absolute. And so what you wind up with is a model in any moment of experiencing. Let's say, you know, you're in one of the camps at Auschwitz or, or something, uh, or in Darfur, you know, these last whatever many, too many years, uh, or in a home where a husband has gone ballistic through being a rageaholic or an alcoholic or something, unhealed, untreated, and the family members are taking the brunt. It feels like hell in that moment. On level three, yeah, that's a hellish situation. There needs to be an intervention. Let's bring in social workers, say in the case of the abusive family situation or in the case of you know, the Nazi death camps, uh, and death marches, let the Soviet soldiers come in and the allied soldiers come in and liberate those poor hapless people who are so hideously, hideously abused and tormented and slaughtered so level three is all about justice and injustice, right and wrong, appropriate and inappropriate, skillful and unskillful, to use old Buddhist language, you know, how does compassion get manifested skillfully, maybe not so skillfully. Let's always be aiming for more skillful manifestation of compassion. But on level two, you could say that whatever is happening is somehow, and you almost have to allow for a big silence. And the only way I could say this, for instance, about the Nazi Holocaust is because some of the greatest uh, Hasidic Jewish rabbis themselves said it. Level two interpretation or human, hermeneutic level of, say, the death camp at Auschwitz or in a number of the camps is that it's all perfect. The souls playing the roles of the Nazis have extraordinary lessons and tests and challenges facing them of how compassionate or how obedient and conformist and cowardly they were going to be. On the side of the Jewish and other inmates of those camps, uh, gypsies and homosexuals and others who were considered undesirables, it's like, you know, how selfless and courageous are they in sharing their little uh, morsels with people that couldn't even get out of bed that day and were probably going to be exterminated later that day, but they wanted to give them a last little tiny bit of food just to please them. You see the whole gamut of evil and good, courage and cowardice, the whole play of the opposites. And there's something intrinsically perfect about the extraordinarily stupendous drama of that kind of situation. And because souls are undying, this one Jewish uh, Hasidic Rebbe, Yanasim Gershon, has been going all over the world. He worked with hypnotherapists and then he learned hypnotherapy skills. He was regressing people who felt that they had lived during the Holocaust and died during the Nazi Holocaust. The first thing they would experience as soon as they dropped the body was, I'm no longer cold, I'm no longer hungry, I'm no longer in pain or in fear, I'm in bliss. 
That was just an earthly manifestation. I am a soul. So level two is all about souls, the intrinsic perfection and innocence, blissfulness of souls, their imperturbability, their incapacity to be touched by the phenomena of the uh, worlds of, of pain and, and denser illusion. It's also all about God. If Yes, exactly. Is God making mistakes? You know, I mean, huh? is he screwing up? Does he not oh. uh, have, is he not omniscient? Omn and I say he, again, it's the limitations of language. Um, yeah, I am that am. Yeah. And I, I like to think that we can actually see all these three levels in a sense. I mean, the, the level, the most manifest level is obvious and the, the needs for social justice and all that, all that stuff and the, you know, the, the laws of mechanical laws of nature and all that stuff that sciences study and you know we deal with this as a society level two the subtle level science again if we look closely we see divine perfection in every molecule it's it's every atom every every biological entity is just uh, operating in complete harmony with laws of nature that are, are so vast and so intricate and, and so abiding that it's beyond human understanding. We're just groping along trying to understand them better. And, and yeah, I went into that in some length uh, uh -huh. in that 2003 interview with the Sun magazine. Good. I have that whole thing up at the, uh, the website. But yeah, there's so many books by so many amazed scientists who just appreciate the stupendous miraculousness of these consummately fine, 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 fine-tuned balances where, you know, it'll be a, a fraction, so many decimal places over, and if you move the decimal place just one point to the left or one point to the right, we're talking like trillions of a trillionth. Of, we we wouldn't a, have had a universe. Yeah, like if the force of, of matter just so happened to be just a little bit stronger, a little bit weaker than antimatter. And mind you, you know, it's something like, I, don't, I can't remember, but it's like 27 decimal points. Yeah. If you move it over one decimal point to the left or the right, just a little stronger, a little weaker, you don't get a physical cosmos. Yeah, I, I, I believe Robert Lanza strength. is one of those who writes very eloquently on that. Yeah, so there's like this... Um, there's proof of it. <laughs> yeah, and it's staring us in the face. We're, we're, yeah. we're swimming in it all the time. There's just this, yeah. this sort of marvelous play and display of of vast, infinite intelligence, and, and yeah. God is in his heaven and all is right with the world and on that level. <laughs> and so on yeah. that level, it's like, it makes all the difference in terms of how, for instance, engaged spirituality in the form of activism gets carried out, say, on that level three, the level of pragmatic relativism. You know, Gandhiji, uh, Mohandas K. Gandhi, Mahatma, Great Soul Gandhi, uh, who's really the, I seen as the father of the modern era engaged spirituality movement. Uh, he perfected so many of the aspects of the approach. He, for his satyagrahis, those trained in, in his way of satyagraha, truth force, a mysterious word that has a lot of connotations, uh, but it would take too long to go into it. He trained them in total love and respect for the essential goodness of whomever the perpetrator might be. And he forbade people from using sarcasm or 
the kind of dualistic, uh, mocking sloganeering that goes on. You know, so much in our, say, American political process could be healed by that, but you know, being ready to quite live that level of impeccability and integrity. But he always wanted uh, his satyagrahis and everyone to see that even the worst perpetrators, the worst monsters of uh, perpetrating injustice, that fundamentally they are innocent souls underneath yeah. all that complicated conditioning, all those unwholesome samskaras that seem to be pulling and pushing and driving their behavior. They are on level two, absolutely innocent, pure emanations out of this one single reality doing everything and being everyone. So if we live all three levels spontaneously, there's a balance. If you get a little too into just one level, like say A Course in Miracles, I've had to be critical of because it almost always only speaks on level two mm. about intrinsic perfection. And it's very imbalanced and undermines and provides no support whatever for an engaged spirituality of level three. Mm -hmm. Of actually talking about certain problems and how, you know, here are the apparent causes and here's the evidence for what might work, you know, to help uh, solve this problem, a whole set of problems. So I have a number of questions I'd like to ask you, some that have come in from um, online viewers as we speak here, and uh, some from our friend Thomas Rosetto, who, your student, whom I interviewed a couple of months ago. And um, so let me just go through them. They're not necessarily in a logical order, but we'll just take each one and see what you have to say. So the first one is from Bobby in Griffin, Georgia. Bobby asks, Timothy, can you speak to the topic of patience on the path? I have been meditating for six or seven years and have felt many changes and beautiful experiences, yet many habits in my life remain fixed. Seeking has fallen away a good bit, and I'm much happier in general, but I can't, but I can't help but want the big shift. I know that desire can be a hindrance and yet also propels us forward. It feels like a bit of a balancing act, like avoiding sweets, yet really at the core desiring a big piece of cake. <laughs> Uh, it's a fun question, Bobby. Thanks for your sincerity in posing it. You've said uh, a lot of the seeking has fallen off. And in fact, all of it could fall off. Because right now, what you are intrinsically, closer than close, not at all like a human being, nameless, formless, pure, pure, pure spirit, is whole, has no parts, nothing lacking, no structure, seamless, full, openness. So there need not be any seeking. As soon as we make who we truly are, our vastness into an it or a that, Many teachers continue to use these kind of pronouns, it and that, which are very impersonal. Moreover, they suggest a fundamental dualism between who I am and what I'm seeking, the great reality. Great reality is the reality. It's your withinness and withoutness, inside, outside, your up and down, your in and out, everything, and formless. So, Right now, there can be completeness. 
and your open, formless nature. And spontaneously and paradoxically, your formlessness is host for this whole play of forms. Your supra-personal nature is hosting, witnessing, and animating. Have no, you know, your supra-personal nature, Bobby, is hosting and manifesting and powering this whole play of personhood, well, Bobby. Now, for the Bobby personal consciousness, there can be not seeking, but a divinely infused aspiration. My teacher, Sri, one of my teachers, Sri Nizar Gadatta, his teacher, Sri Siddha Rameshwar Maharaj, we do have uh, some beautiful uh, records of what he wrote and, and spoke. Uh, and he always was speaking about, let seeking drop off, but let there be the holy aspiration. Let the personal consciousness, insofar as it seems to have any power or free will or choice, again, like the moon's light, it's all borrowed from the sun. Uh, all that power, the sentience, the choice, it all comes from the absolute. Let it manifest through the personal consciousness in a full aspiration a beautiful, lively aspiration to allow all the divine qualities and virtues and capacities to express through the Bobby personality. And with this, it's not a matter of patience or impatience. You are so wonderstruck moment by vanishing moment that anything can arise at all. A world of experience, a Bobby personal consciousness, which is just a speck upon a speck of uh, who you truly are in your vastness. There'll be such wonder, such uh, curiosity, such uh, just openness and sincerity that uh, you won't have literally the phenomenon of time to be impatient. You won't be measuring this moment against some imagined future moment when you are truly God realized. All those notions are just not here in uh, the present unfolding in the formlessness that you are. Um, on this seeking note, let me read you the last few sentences of an abstract I wrote up from my talk at the Science and Non-Duality Conference this year. Yeah. It relates to this. If we see spiritual development as never-ending, will we be forever chasing the dangling carrot? Or can we rest in our true nature, the seeking energy having dropped off, and yet acknowledge that compared with what might be possible, we are relative beginners? Many spiritual teachers make statements such as, this is it, you are that which you are seeking, realize this and you are finished. Is such advice helpful or does it shortchange spiritual aspirants? Well, I find this question becomes problematic for a lot who've been influenced by the Hindu Vedanta and the Advaita formulations of Shankara and his lineage of followers. In the Chan and Son and Zen traditions, uh, which is part of the great Mahayana Buddhist uh, development uh, dating back to like the century before Christ, the Ashta Sahasrika Pranya Parimita Sutra, the Pranya Parimita, perfect wisdom sutra or scripture in 8,000 lines, Ashta Sahasrika. That's the earliest Mahayana Buddhist text we know of. And already the paradox is there and stated fully and later in works like the Vajrachedika Pranya Parima, uh, Paramita Sutra, the, the diamond cutter, perfect wisdom scripture, and many other works. Uh, they really bring this paradox to the fore uh, that is right up front. 
And it's all about how beings, personal consciousnesses, are always in process of evolution. Even the highest, highest bodhisattvas and perfect Buddhas are always delightfully finding new powers, new capacities, new ways of being virtuous, it seems. It's all this spontaneous Buddha play of such extraordinary splendor and beauty, divinity. You know, works like the Avatamsaka Sutra, powerful, profound work, I don't know, somewhere like around the second century of the Common Era, uh, just went on for pages and pages and pages of descriptions of these uh, amazing Buddha activities of Buddhas and, and Bodhisattvas. So, yeah, let the enlightening and the infusing of divine virtue and the learning of new capacities for helping and more intelligent, powerful ways of being compassionate and effective, let all of that continue. But fundamentally, what we are is this intrinsic, pristine openness, imperfectible, nothing wrong, not a matter of becoming or developing. So Srinivasa for instance, said to us, I think it was the first night I was there in uh, Bombay, Mumbai, back in January of 1981, he said, uh, what you are, you can only be what you are not, that you can become. It was his simple way of referring to the fact that in our absolute nature, it's perfection and fullness, unbounded, incomparable. But on the level of the personal consciousness, there will be all sorts of growing and developing and in fits and starts, there can be tremendous tests and challenges. And in a one lifetime, there might be post-traumatic stress disorder and you know one's nerves feel like they're just uh, afraid beyond uh, healing. There might be all sorts of uh, situations, wars and rapes and uh, terrors that uh, the personal consciousness kind of signs up for. <laughs> Again, it's all one divine reality orchestrating everything because it's the one divine being everyone. When a being is suffering intense physical or emotional pain, who is experiencing it? Only God. God is the one sentience. The Supreme Self, or Shiva, or the Buddha nature, the Absolute, is the only sentient one here. It's experiencing life from the Rick viewpoint, the Irene viewpoint, the birds and the bees and the celestial beings. So anything that any being is experiencing it's not their experience separate from God. God is kind of looking down or the great immobile uh, self of Shiva stillness. No, it's not that. Shiva is Shakti and is playing as each being, experiencing each experience. So uh, Shiva has compassion, infinite compassion. Our Buddha nature has infinite compassion, not just wisdom, but compassion and empathy loving kindness and sympathetic joy for all that each being is going through. I like to think of the metaphor of light bulbs in the electrical field. I mean, let's say, we could say, yeah. you are the electrical field, the ubiquitous, omnipresent field which powers all light bulbs. And then individually, you're also a light bulb. And as an individual light bulb, you can maybe upgrade from a 4-watt to a 10-watt to a 50-watt to a 100-watt to a big searchlight or something like that. And as you upgrade, 
you get brighter and brighter, but you're still from all along that same ubiquitous electrical field in your absolute nature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, on the relative level, that metaphor works very beautifully to suggest. And also, too, light bulbs get smashed. Yeah, they do. They do. And they if get the Timothy, they yeah, get dirty. Utterly vanished. They wouldn't make a difference to the cosmos as far as who I am is concerned. And yet, for some reason, uh, the Timothy personal consciousness is allowed to continue, as is every personal consciousness. So I think our divine nature finds each of these personal consciousnesses, the light bulb, so to say, quite adorable. Yeah. There's an interesting paradoxical flip that happens devotionally in spiritual life with non-duality. And that's that instead of trying to seek out a separate, above everyone, beautiful, most beautiful deity to worship. Instead, you realize you are the absolute and you find all person G's, like Babaji or Swamiji, I like to use that G, that suffix of endearment, mm -hmm. uh, the beloved. I like to use that for all persons, all Jiva G's, person G's, ego G's. I find all of them adorable. I find all are manifestations of who and what I absolutely am. And so no one can be a stranger to you and no one can be lesser and everyone is equally important. A minute ago you referred to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and divine beings and so on like that continuing to evolve and become, explore new realms of possibility. And, and that's yet, all of us. Yeah, and yet you also referred to, you know, well, this t Timothy personal consciousness can be snuffed out. And some, some say that the individual is snuffed out like a drop going into the ocean when enlightenment happens and, and doesn't exist in any way, shape, or form anymore. Others refer, like the Buddhist tradition, refer to these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that are hanging out on some level, and people receive visions of Jesus or various beings come to them in in sort of subtle realm experiences so is is your sense that there's some sort of uh, integrity to what we are that continues on eternally and continues to evolve or do we just at some point merge into the ocean and no longer cease to exist in any distinct way shape or form well, the no Asian texts speak of the Mahapralaya, the great absorption of all phenomena. At the end of the universe. That transcendently dreams them, conjures them up moment by vanishing moment. So ultimately all phenomena, including personal consciousnesses, are in that sense expendable. But uh, no, it's quite clear that all sorts of beautiful beings, sagely, saintly beings, avatars, they... Uh, become almost like beautiful archetypes and the divine just continues to animate them as they did in the first place, bringing them into different lifetimes and uh, into a uh, sagely uh, kind of realization that helped drop all the unwholesome samskaras and make them pure and beautiful fonts, cascading fonts of virtue and goodness and loving kindness and compassion. So yeah, being like Ramana Maharshi, was dead to himself. He was just ash. And yet, I have, I've interviewed at okay. least half a dozen people who say that Ramana came to them, in some cases, before they even knew he existed. Uh, they, yeah. sh they showed up in very tangible, he showed up in very tangible form, and then later on, they saw a book with his picture on it, and say, wow, that's the guy I saw. Yeah. No, I, I've had these subtle plane manifestations of Sri Ramana, and 
and numerous other beings. And it's like the one actor uh, playing all these characters, all these personae. You know the old Greek word personae. It means literally the mask. Mm. Sound through, personare. You hold up this mask and sound your voice through it, and your eyes would peep through the peepholes. And uh, So that's what person means. It's the mask of the absolute infinite by which it can differentiate into different uh, loci, different places of experience. So Rick's experiences are not Irene's experiences, are not Timothy's experiences, are not that bird on the branch, uh, that bird's experiences. There's all this differentiation for gazillions of different kind of beings, human, animal, celestial, and yet one being, one sentience, one awareness playing as all of these consciousnesses through the universal consciousness play, Shakti. Every time you say gazillions, I'm reminded of a George Bush joke. Some one of his you know, advisors came to him and said, uh, President Bush, um, three Brazilian soldiers were killed in Iraq and his face went ashen and he said, how many is a Brazilian? <laughs> okay, another question for you here. Uh, Mark Peters asks, do the, yes. do the increasing levels of nationalism seen both in the United States and globally and inaction denial on climate change trouble you? Or is everything seen as well and wisely put no matter what arises? Well, definitely on the level three, so to say, of this threefold model, justices and injustices, and harmful and helpful and all of this. Uh, play of the Dwandwas, the opposites. Oh, there are extreme conditions. Uh, there's massive denial. For instance, it's been shown by two World Bank scientists, one of whom has passed on, Robert Goodland, and his younger colleague, Jeff Anhang, still at the World Bank. They did this remarkable study for World Watch Institute. It was published in fall 2009, which shows clearly, shows clearly that it's our eating habits our massive consumption of meat, poultry, dairy, fish, farmed fish, that is the number one, number one factor in climate change. And they estimate at least 51% of all global greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and methane uh, are responsible. I, I'm sorry, it's a livestock industry that's responsible for at least 51%. Mm -hmm these GHGs, as they're called. And uh, so Robert Goodland, before he passed away, he was strongly, strongly encouraging at least 70, 80% of humanity to go vegan. Mm -hmm. Now, this is just about climate change. You yeah, it's a, before you go on, I encourage people to watch the movie Cowspiracy. If you have oh, there's a whole lot of films. Documentary uh, about that subject. And educated it's, many others, Earthling. Read also the works of Gary Francione at abolitionistapproach.org about, you know, this, what is now being called the greatest uh, social justice movement of the modern era. And that's namely realizing, as science has increasingly realized just in recent decades, the personhood nature of creatures, not just cows that we abuse in the dairy industry and meat industry and so forth, poultry, but even like fish. As more and more scientists realize these beings aren't just units of some kind of production for us for our food. No, they're uh, 
consciousnesses that are associated with intense feelings and social bonds. They are persons, they are animal persons. There needs to be an abolitionist movement, just like there was an abolitionist movement to end the enslaving and torturing and exploiting of humans, uh, the same with animals. And it's never been easier, never been easier to eat vegan. And you know, so many of the Chan and Zen and so on monasteries, the monks and nuns, they all eat vegan. Most of them live to be well into their 90s and hundreds. All sorts of scientific studies show you live longer. It's better for you know the environment and about 27 different ways. It's the number one factor in trying to mitigate woeful climate change. So there are solutions, but are people uh, really sincere and willing to uh, respond in an intelligent, compassionate way? That remains to be seen. Okay, here's a question Eli from Denver asks. Do you feel that you are able to observe tendencies in yourself or samskaras, as you would say? What do you do when you notice such things in your own personal consciousness? Thank you, Eli, for that question. And most certainly I'll notice uh, things arising and all that is, quote, to be done is to see them off sooner than later. And sometimes there'll be, you know, patterns of old traumas or whatever, uh, or just outrageous things happening. And then one might be kind of uh, reeling with uh, an unwholesome samskara for a little bit. And there's always just the realization that God is powering all this. Uh, God, you know, our true nature, the Shiva Shakti, formless and all powerful forming nature can let this go. And so it's so it's all a matter of how, how open are you willing to be in your absolute fundamental openness? How much can the personal consciousness be uh, uh, transparent for our fundamental supra-personal, meta-personal nature? Here's some questions from our friend Thomas Rosetto, whom again I interviewed about a couple months ago if people want to check out his interview. And his infinitely mystical uh, website. Yeah, he's a good one. Is samadhi something that is required to become fully awake to the correct identification of the self as pure open source awareness? If someone has had this quote-unquote experience, even if only once, does that mean that they are fully enlightened? Hmm. I would say, you know, there's different kind of samadhis recognized in yogic literature and even among the Vedantins like Shankara. Samadhi, basically the old Sanskrit means the sameness or oneness, sam, sama of the D, the highest intelligence, uh, highest cognitive principle. And so it basically means the absorption of the mind in a trance state. And then they differentiate like Patanjali does in Yoga Sutra, differentiates between samadhis based or centered on some form, getting more and more and more subtle, 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 and finally nirvikalpa samadhi, samadhi without seed or form. The others oriented to form are called savikalpa samadhi. And, uh, you know, the yogic traditions of later kundalini yoga, Gauraknata, who kind of seems to have come up with our first kundalini yoga texts about a thousand years after Patanjali, that is, you know, somewhere maybe around a thousand years ago. He specifies other kind of energetic kind of samadhis and 
then the devotional traditions have different bhava samadhis where you're very, for instance, absorbed just in the essence of Krishna or the essence of Shiva, for instance. So there's all these different kinds of samadhi. They are just experiences. They come, they go. As Ramana Maharshi always invited, what are you prior to all the comings and goings of states and phenomena, visions and samadhis? What are you changelessly prior to the arising of all of these? What are you after all of these leave and all of them leave? So it's also true that like in deep dreamless sleep, that's a nirvakalpa samadhi if you were clear. Uh, most people are non-clear during their deep dreamless sleep and so it doesn't have the kind of glow and clarity and just dazzling quality of, of conscious nirvakalpa samadhi. But you can learn to have uh, fall asleep and watch yourself through the visionary states all the way into deep dreamless sleep. And that's uh, a hint of nirvakalpa samadhi. And then you hear people like Ramakrishna uh, up in Bengal in the 19th century who spent like six months in that state. He had to have someone uh, just putting little bits of liquid and food into his mouth just to keep soul and, and body together. No, and the, remember Ramana, I mean, sitting down in that pit beneath, beneath the temple with worms chewing his legs, you know, and uh, yeah, he was he was out of it, <laughs> but he was yeah, into he spent it. spent a lot of time in those early years at uh, Arunachala in states of uh, Nirvakalpa Samadhi. Mm -hmm. And then one day, as he himself uh, spoke about, and it was recorded in the literature on Bhagavan Sri Ramana, he had a, a kind of a death experience. It was a second death. Uh, it was years after the one that initially woke him up uh, in his uncle's upper room down there in Madurai near the Menakshi temple. Later on, this second death, when he was at Adonachala, just felt like the total end of the need for any kind of nirvakalpa samadhi, after which he just only spoke of sahaja samadhi, the natural oneness, which uh, didn't, it didn't matter whether there was a world or not, whether forms were happening or not, whether he was talking or not. People should, I would also in this context, disabuse themselves of the notion that Ramana only sat around just like the mountain itself, just quiescent, silent. You know, he spent a lot of hours of each day and week talking with people, editing texts, reading the newspaper. Working in the kitchen. New, for those, yeah, he was the first one up. Uh, masterfully chopping the vegetables and preparing the sauces. Some of the old ladies had been cooks their entire lives. They wondered, where did he get these skills? You know, it all just flowed spontaneously. Action or quiescence, you know, dynamic movement or literal physical stillness, it all came from the same source. And so Ramana was not attached to states of silence or words. He could be very eloquent and loquacious on occasion. Yeah. He was very personal and yet not impersonal, but you had the strong feeling of this kind of suprapersonal source nature prior to all persons, inclusive of all persons. People felt intimate with Ramana because he did not distance himself in any way as the suprapersonal. Again, not the impersonal, but as the suprapersonal. He was inclusive of all persons, human or animal, who came to him. And that's why the animals spontaneously gravitated to him. They sensed someone who was one with them, not other than them. 
I heard an interesting thing when I was listening to some recordings by David Godman, whom I interviewed mm -hmm. a couple of times. Um, he was saying that Ramana said that in samadhi, in deep, I guess you would call it nirvikalpa samadhi, senses withdrawn from their objects, he could sort of he could dissolve the sort of um, impurities that he tended to absorb from his devotees, and but at a certain stage he stopped doing that, and you know people around him said he noticeably aged much more quickly after that. And at one point when he was suffering from his cancer, he, you know, someone said to him, well, why don't you just apportion your suffering among all of us? We'll gladly take each take on a portion, then you won't have it. And he said, where do you think I got it from in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> so it would seem that physiologically even, that Nirvikalpa Samadhi could be an opportunity for the physiology to restore itself and, you know, purge itself of of anything that any accumulated dross and that's why deep dreamless sleep itself yeah has like that a value stanford, yeah. stanford university sleep clinics from the 1950s onward deep dreamless sleep is what restores or helps regenerate the physical body mm -hmm. whereas it's the dreaming sleep the so-called rapid eye movement or REM sleep that helps restore the psyche when you deprive an organism of REM sleep you'll start causing psychological disintegration, mental disorder, emotional disorder. And if you deprive an organism of the deep dreamless sleep, they know with certain organisms, they killed those organisms. They had to stop doing it with humans. Mm. That's why, uh, you know, on the personal consciousness level, you know, one reads uh, one of the greatest health things uh, is eight hours of sleep. Yeah. Maybe twice a year I might get as much as seven hours of sleep. But for most of my adult life, it's been about five, four hours of sleep. You know, so I don't think this Timothy fell live very long. He already looks about twenty years older. <laughs> Some people don't. My need wife, actually, I was joking. A big secret here. My wife, and I, I think she'll get a kick out of this. It's humorous. She's actually eleven months older than I am. Mm -hmm. But twice now she's gotten mistaken for my daughter. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and I predicted several years ago that would be happening. Now I'm predicting, honey, just a few more years, people will be mistaking you for my granddaughter. <laughs> Ariana Huffington is on a campaign these days to you know, encourage people to stop burning out and get more sleep. She just wrote a book about it. On this point of, uh, well, something that this discussion reminds me of, as I was listening to your recordings, there were several points at which you seem to be speaking somewhat disparagingly of meditation, yoga practices, and things like that. Uh, quiescence, you just mentioned quiescence. So, as you know, the first couple of verses of the Yoga Sutras are, you know, the yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind, then the seer is established in himself. And I'm not sure if I agreed with everything I heard you saying. I'm Obviously, when, our, when Krishna advocated being without the three gunas to Arjuna on the battlefield, he then, a couple of verses later, uh, said, established in yoga, perform action. And in that case, a very dynamic action, a battle. So I think that there's a sort of a... In ancient India, you know, they used to dye cloth by dipping it in the dye, then bleaching it in the sun, and, and repeating that process alternately until it eventually became color fast. So I think there's something to be said for meditative periods where the mind and body become silent, and obviously you're not going to remain in that state, but it produces physiological change and it also sort of infuses the, the mind, if you will, with being, with pure awareness in a way which over time 
accumulates and becomes stable under all circumstances. Yes, there's definitely good habits for the psyche, like eating wholesome, healthy plant food and you know, maintaining all the different kinds of sattvic elements as Krishna identifies in the Bhagavad Gita where he's talking about the three guna, you know, the three different gunas, the qualities of agitation or staleness, that is rajoguna and, and tamoguna, and then the way of satoguna, the quality of sattva or uh, refinement and harmony and up-level kind of uh, experiencing and behaving. So definitely good. What those kind of remarks of mine over the years in satsang that have sometimes been critical of the yogic way, it refers specifically to something I've seen over and over and over, heard, I should say, over and over and over from uh, aspirants as they present their state in satsang when they're being very candid and honest and sincere and humble. I've noticed too often what's happened for many beings is they have a huge dichotomy, a huge split or fragment in their life, a fragmentation between when they feel peaceful and meditative and then all those other times. <laughs> and I'm aware that so much of this has to do with also one's uh, home life and one's vocation. You know, the CEO of a for-profit or non-profit organization or corporation, they, uh, you know, where they have to accomplish about 49 tasks before lunch and be answerable to you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people, it's not going to be so easy for them to live the kind of yogic serenity, you know, bliss, bliss, peace, peace, streaming, purely, evenly, consciousness states, there's going to be sudden stuff happening. You know, emergency workers going into a crisis area. What kind of yogic calm will they have? Now, if they've spent a lot of time in meditation, they have that as a baseline, like kind of a backdrop they can operate from. But sometimes there needs to be real adrenaline rush. Oh, yeah. We, from all those early studies of meditation, uh, the yogic kind of meditation that came out of a tradition you're well familiar with, TM, that there were certain kinds of uh, psychophysiology going on. But there are certain vocations in life where the whole hormone flow, the whole cascade of psychophysiological chemistry, biochemistry, is going to need to be chock full of like adrenaline. Sure. And they're kind of. Uh, Stuff. So are those people not spiritual? Are they in not a spiritual state when they're, say, rescuing people from the rubble after a horrifying earthquake? And so also, like, someone comes to a satsang and says, you know, all day today or for the last year, I've just felt not as peaceful as I used to when I used to be able to do retreats and so forth. And it's at that point I realized people have confused their spirituality with states. Yes. And so much of yogic orientation is about main, perfecting and maintaining states. And that's why many of the yogis have to become recluses and leave society, go off and live in solitude, get a routine kind of uh, existence, you know, where they eat their meals at a certain time, they have their bowel movements at a certain time, everything gets all very regulated and routinized so they can just dwell in some kind of samadhi or near samadhi, this what seems to them some kind of seamless state. But 
if a bunch of kids moved into a little hamlet, uh, you know, let's say families came to that one hamlet from another one fleeing, I don't know, a, a rock slide or something, and suddenly that yogi's meditations every day were being interrupted by little children playing and laughing and crying and screaming, what would the yogi do? That yogi, having made himself slave to a state of phenomenal peace, is not awakened to their supra-phenomenal nature, which would find all the cries and laughter of the children to be just other aspects of the one Om vibration. Yeah. So sagely way, the sagely way is to awaken to our true absolute host nature, which is host for all vibrations, all worlds, all kinds of experiences, all kinds of vocations and states and demands of compassion. To be a spouse, for instance, a family person raising children or grandchildren is much more difficult in most ways uh, than being a yogi who you know has his needs basically provided for by the villagers who look up to that yogi as some kind of superior being. But could that yogi trade place with, say, one of those, quote, lowly villagers? I'm not so sure that yogi could, because that yogi has bound him or herself to a particular, a particular state. And our true reality, the true self-nature, Shiva, is state-free prior to all states and host for all states. Sure. Well, I, I understand all that. And uh, what I'm saying, though, is that I know plenty of, we could call them yogis, who are householders, businessmen, who live active lives, yet who, through a lifetime of practice, have integrated the silence into dynamic activity. So they could yes. they could be an emergency room doctor or uh, someone who's you know raising a family or whatever, and yet the serenity and clarity that you know once might might once have just been a, a moment a, a temporary glimpse in deep meditation has become a twenty four seven feature of their awareness and, and on the outside it might not be so noticeable they might be just you know really busy but on the inside there's that rock solid clarity and, and silence and that's real freedom and yeah. so the whole question comes forth how does that freedom best arise uh, through years and years of yoga kind of uh, retreat experience or can it happen through this sudden awakening and this is where the chan and so on and zen tradition uh, made a huge contribution, I think, to the non-dual traditions. And I often find myself needing to talk in this uh, language with the Chan and Zen reference uh, here as a, as a kind of a corrective or something to complement the yogic traditions of India, which have colored even some of the Advaita sagely traditions of India, uh, still sometimes a little too yogic. In the Chan and Zen tradition, they speak strongly of the need for this, Sudden awakening, the old Chinese term is Danwu, Danwu, sudden awakening, and then Jianzhu, gradual cultivation. And it's all about that aspiration I was speaking about earlier and nothing to do with selfish seeking. There's this sudden awakening right now, right now, it takes no time. Timelessly, you are this changeless openness this fullness of the absolute, pure, pristine spirit, not at all like a human being, not at all like anything or state or energy or world or condition. 
And yet, as you said of Shankar earlier, not everyone is ready for that sudden awakening. There may need to be gradual cultivation before the sudden awakening becomes possible. Right. And then it's in the context of that sudden awakening that the rest of the cultivation, and it can be unending for eons, can occur. The uh, spontaneous practicing of spiritual practices, the manifestation of certain virtues and learning of different skills and so forth and so on. But it all happens not out of the problematic sense of I'm an unenlightened me and I need to do these practices in order to realize that the right. great state of freedom. No, that whole illusion is just wiped clean from essential freedom when freely is practicing this and that virtue, this and that strength yeah. in this situation or that situation. And it's all happening gradually. And there's the realization that the sudden awakening is kind of the realization of your innate Buddha nature, your unborn, timeless, boundless Buddha nature. But the gradual cultivation is what it actually means for the personal consciousness to start manifesting Buddha-like virtues and qualities and capacities over time, over the eons. And that's that whole process of becoming. And so Sri Nisargadatta said, what you are not you can become. People may not be expressing all the Buddha qualities. Um, I'm very conventionally, I don't know how to speak Tibetan. I'm not a Tibetan speaker. With some years of training, I could become that. But more importantly, in terms of all the great virtues, not just a skill like language, you know, I could become a supremely loving, loving, compassionate being. I could become that, but what I am is this, which is prior to all developmental practices, all cultivation, all wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of the personhood. So the Chan masters were real clear. Let there be tremendous energies and dedication and efforts uh, exerted for cleaning the monastery, growing food, uh, being a villager, being a monastic. Let there be tremendous uh, effusion of qualities and wholesome behaviors, yet it all happens from the context of there's not an ego in here trying to do all that, trying to become better. So I find that a very important model, the, the Shankara interpretation of Advaita, the way most people have interpreted, it suggests this quality of awaken to the absolute self and you're finished. And it doesn't allow for, I'm not saying Shankara didn't allow for, but I'm saying the way his message has been interpreted by many there's this quality of finality that seems to me just silly. And it leads to these people saying they have realized the self and then trying to market themselves with the finality of that. And that strikes me again, silly. I agree. As my friend Francis Bennett puts it, how do you know you're done? Did someone stick a fork in you? <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, I think we better wrap it up. I, there are more questions from Thomas, but I'm sure he's asked those of you before. And uh, you know, and yeah, thank you, Thomas. Thomas has put very uh, unselfishly. He's uh, with tremendous generosity of spirit. Not only recorded and figured out the sound levels and so forth of many uh, digital recordings of the satsangs that would present over the years, but he's put them up on the internet. And all of it's available for free, so people can experience all that. 
Yeah, they're, they're nice. Uh, uh, I encourage uh, people to, Santa Barbara. I encourage people to listen to them. And it's sweet because you can sort of hear as the evening progresses, the frogs start croaking. First, there's birds in the background, and then it, the evening starts to come on, and then there's these beautiful frogs singing, and it gives you a real feeling for, for being there. And yeah, sometimes there wouldn't be any frogs, just crickets, or some nights it was the owls, yeah. two owls that would sing to each other. Yeah, we lived, that house was right up on the northern edge of the city of Santa Barbara, mm -hmm. so the whole back was uh, wilderness. Great. We had lots of creatures up there. And that's at enlightened-spirituality.org, right? People can find those recordings as well yeah. as as yeah. well as hundreds of pages, really, of things you've written. It's amazing how prolific you are. All kinds of things. I especially encourage people to read that um, Three Levels article that you mentioned. Maybe I'll link to it from your BatGap page. It's, I think, a very handy teaching tool and, and way of understanding and reconciling the paradoxes that some, we yeah. sometimes encounter in spiritual practice or spiritual pursuit. But you'll find all of this right in yourself. Anyone who, without even reading, I never read anything when there was a major awakening and life-changing uh, boom, yeah. you know, in the 16th year or whenever it was. Uh, so uh, anyone can open to this and then you'll be creating your own websites or something and freely sharing and, and it'll all be realized to be the activity of the one dreaming us all. Alrighty. So apologies to those whose questions I didn't get to. I know, I've noticed a few have come in that haven't been forwarded to me yet, but maybe I'll forward them to Timothy and if you have a chance. Yeah, people can freely email me yeah. at .conway1, the number one, at cox.net. D.Conway1 at Cox.net. Do you want me to post that on, on your BatGap sure. page? Okay, I'll do that. I'll post your email address. People can email you if they didn't get a chance to ask your question online, their question online. So let me just make a couple of wrap-up points. I've been speaking with Timothy Conway. It's my second interview with him. Check out the first one if you like. Uh, you'll find them both and many, many others on BatGap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. I encourage you to explore the menus and see what else is on there, some interesting things. Uh, there's an audio podcast, as I mentioned. The, the uh, previous interviews are categorized in four or five different ways. There's A number of them have been transcribed, if you'd like to actually just read them. And there's some other, you look under the resources menu, you'll find some useful resources and tools. And this is a work in progress, there will be many more. I think we're gonna take a little vacation for a couple of weeks now, and um, when I come back, the weekend I come, I, we come back, I'll be interviewing Radhanath Swami, who is uh, leader of the ISKCON, Hare Krishna movement, and Rick Weinman, who is the founder of something called Vortex Healing. And then a, a week after that, Sri M, and then I believe I'll be going off to the Science and Non-Duality Conference and having some conversations with Adyashanti and, and Susanna Marie and other people. So, thanks for listening or watching. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Timothy. Thank you, Rick, for the chance to be with all dear souls here. Best wishes in all the work that you, Irene, everyone involved with that gap are doing. It's a great service, bringing forth greater wisdom and compassion. It's great fun. <laughs> Namaste. Namaste. Namaste, dear Rick G. Thank you.